you don't know me, I'm Scott Mathis. I am the president of the Berean Fellowship of Churches, of which this church belongs. And I travel all over the country to a different church each weekend, inspiring and influencing God's people to pursue Christ's plan for their life. So it is a privilege to be with Mitchell Berean Church this weekend. Again, if you don't know, we served here for 19 years from uh, 1992 to 2011. And uh, God just, it was neat to see what God did in the miracle in Mitchell. I was thinking this week of my life before Christ. I grew up uh, over in LaGrange, Wyoming, and as a poor kid, and always wanted to be a cowboy and worked my way up. And uh, for a while, I decided I was going to try and rope for a living. Now, probably if you'd have taken a vote, a lot of people said, ah, that's not going to happen, Scott. But I tried. And praise God, my wife was teaching school at the time. But uh, I'd go roping and didn't win a lot of money. And somehow my wife was very misunderstanding and just a plain jerk about me taking the grocery money and going roping with it. But that's another story for another time. But I'd go and I'd go compete, and boy, if I won something, man, I was on top of the world. Because roping defined my life. That was what I did. That was who I was. And if I won something, man, I'd walk back to the trailer. Yeah, I'm going to be a professional roper. But more often than not, I'd lose. I'd miss in a short round. Or I would rope good, but partners would miss. And I'd drive home, and I would consider myself a worthless piece of junk. Because roping was who I was. Who or what is defining you today? Is your job defining you? Or is what your recreational pursuit defining you? Are you defined by your role in your family? Your job you do? So often, right, in our culture, what do you do? We're defined by what we do. But the beauty of authentic Christianity is it is completely different from every other belief system in that God does this miracle of grace in your life and mine and redefines us and we can have a whole new identity. Not our body type, not our bank account, not our family of origin, not our job, but we as Christ ones have this new identity under a new regime, if you will, in the inner recesses of our heart to redefine us so that we do those things as missionary activities to represent Jesus in a lost and dying world. But that doesn't define us. And if this church is going to continue to see lost people get saved and saved people growing, it needs to be comprised of people who understand who they were before Christ and now understand who they are now in Christ. It is vital. Because, again, Christianity is different than every other world religion. It's not a system where we try to appease the God or gods. It is God coming to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, taking your place and mine on the cross of Calvary, being put in a tomb, being raised from the dead. And our salvation is not about us trying. It's about us trusting. It's about our faith, our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, changes everything. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter after he'd been imprisoned for preaching the gospel. 
He wrote this letter to the churches surrounding the town of Ephesus, and so it became known in the Bible as the book of Ephesians. But it was a letter written from a guy called by God to speak for God and and teach these people who they are in Christ and who this new thing called the church, how you are to operate and live out your life in Christ through the local church. So turn in your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 1 and race through these first 10 verses. And Paul begins by explaining who people were before Christ. He says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. So he says here, once you were dead. Now, obviously, he doesn't mean you were like physically dead. What he means here is before Christ, you and I are spiritually dead in the fact that we have no capacity to know and please God and worship him in spirit and in truth. If you are here and you're not a Christ one, if your mommy drug you here, or your spouse guilted you into coming, or grandma made you come or something, and you are not a Christian, you are dead in your disobedience and sin. You just are dead in your capacity to know and experience the love and kindness and mercy of God. You just are. And, and you're probably sitting there thinking, man, these people are whacked, worshiping God like this, singing these weird songs. And they seem to love it. Because if you're alive spiritually, you just were able to allow your heart to connect with God's heart through these songs, weren't you? But if you're not, if you're far from Christ or you're not a believer, there's this deadness of your soul. And I want you to know that God can make you alive today if you're that way. Verse 2, you used to live in sin. Sin is any thought, word, or deed that violates the character of God. So Paul says, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. So not only are we dead in our disobedience and sins, when we don't know Christ, somehow the devil has, it's kind of like a puff puppet, and he has our hand, his hand, and we are maneuvered and manipulated and lied to by the father of lies, the devil. How bleak of an outlook it is to not be a believer in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we used to live in sin. We're, our, our, we were defined by our deadness of our disobedience and many sins. In fact, in verse 3, he says, all of us. So Paul wasn't just pointing fingers. He, he acknowledged that he used to be dead in his disobedience and sins, even though he was a really religious guy. He said, all of us used to live that way following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Notice the word all and everyone in that verse. Paul says, all of us, without Christ, are dead in our disobedience and sins, somehow controlled by the devil, just following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. And we're under the wrath or anger of God. Now, what would happen if I decided, okay, I'm sick of preaching. I'm really tired. I got a seven-hour drive coming up right after this. I'm done. Goodbye. Wouldn't that be a little depressing? Just those three verses? Those three verses are like, gulp? My goodness. This is a little different than the humanistic society we live in, which says everybody's good. This is a little different than the syncretized uh, version of Christianity a lot of times I hear. Wow, this is, this is harsh stuff. 
under the anger of God, dead in my disobedience and sins? I'm really, really grateful for the next verse. I'm grateful the Apostle Paul wrote the next verse. But God, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. My friends, God is rich in mercy and he loves you. You who got mad at your kids this week. You who gossiped. You this week who stayed addicted to food, to alcohol, to porn. You who said last week, I'm not going to lose my temper again and you did it again. I want you to know that God has not run out of mercy for you today. God is rich in mercy. He never runs out of his mercy in this time period in history. God is so rich in mercy. And I want you to hear his heart today. He loves you. He loved you so much that even though he could never violate his character and say, oh, okay, you're going to be fine. I'll wink at your sin. I'll excuse your sin. No, his perfect holiness and justness said there has to be a payment for sin, but I love these humans so much I'm going to send my own son to be born of a virgin, grow up and be tempted to sin, yet never sin, be a sinless sacrifice where I can pour my wrath for all the sin, past, present, and future of, for every person on earth out on him, and he will die on that cross in sinner's place. How awesome is that? God loves you. Yes, you. You who are sitting there, and you're like, nah, eh, probably not me. Look at my life. All these things are wrong in it. God couldn't love me. My life isn't perfect, so God doesn't love me. That's kind of twisted thinking. God loves you, and he has mercy for you. And my friends, verse 5, even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. And then if Paul was emailing it, this letter to us or if he was texting us this, this would all be in caps, capitals. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. All capitals. Paul wants you to know it's by grace. Salvation in the Christian faith is a gift where God says, listen, I'm going to send my son to take your place on the cross, be raised from the dead on the third day, and I'm going to give that salvation away because I love you and I am filled with mercy. How awesome is that? Too many Christians have lost the wonder of salvation being free. Too many Christians in today's world are still trying somehow to say, God, I believe in Jesus, but now I'll, I'll do the rest my own. And it makes you miserable and harsh and mean, quite frankly. Because grace, the gift of God of salvation to you and I, changes the very fabric of our identity and we can begin to learn who we are really in Christ. And so we do not have to, learn, to, to live like the rest of the world carrying grudges. Why should I carry a grudge if the ground at the foot of the cross is level and everybody is forgiven the same? If, 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 if grace is free, why do I have to make my spouse pay when they do something I don't like? 
If, if, if Jesus has paid for that sin, why am I somehow trying to take the place of God and make them pay? If the gospel is really free and grace is the, the way to life in Christ, but it's also the way of life in Christ, why do I have to criticize and condemn other people or other races or other ethnicities or other cultures? What gives you the right to do that if salvation is all free and salvation is all of grace, dependent only on our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ? It changes everything. When God does the miracle of grace in our life through the work of his spirit and opens our eyes up to the beauty, and we never fully understand the beauty of salvation through grace that he gives it to us, it changes how you and I relate how it sets us free from our addictions. It gives us a, 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 a transcendency in our life of not being completely controlled by the things of this world because we live above. Look at the next verse, verse 7. So, oh, excuse me, verse 6. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ. Friends, if you're a Christian and you're here today, when you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether you were 4 or 16 or 40, whenever that time of salvation in your life occurred, God, in God's reckoning, when Christ died, you died with him to your old way of life. And when, you, when Christ was raised from the dead, he raised you spiritually speaking. Look with me again, verse 6, for he raised us from the dead along with Christ. Remember, verse 1, we were dead in our disobedience and sins. He raised us from the dead along with Christ, and look at this, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. How does God look at you, and does that have any bearing on your identity? If you're a Christian, you died with Christ, you rose with Christ, and Paul says right here, you are seated with him in the heavenly realms. What does that mean in a practical level? It means that you and I can have an eternal perspective and live for things that are important to God. It means that you and I do not have to live self-centered lives of, of trying to grubbing out life, keeping track of every, every slight and every uh, person that wronged us. It means you and I are seated in the heavenlies with Christ. Yes, our feet are still on this earth. We still have to deal on this earth. We still need to serve on this earth. But our heart is in heaven. We're seated in the heavenlies with Christ. Christ is seated right now at the right hand of the Father. And that changes everything. Who are you today? Who or what is defining you? Is this the word of God? Or not? Is this, did Paul just write some opinions he thought up about God and who we are in Christ? No. The Apostle Paul was carried along by the Holy Spirit uh, as he dipped a pen in ink and wrote it on an animal skin to the churches in Ephesus. He was writing the very word of God. And it is still just as relevant here in Podunk, Mitchell, Nebraska in 2021 you and I have a crisis of faith today of am I going to accept what God's word says about me or I, am I going to worship my feelings? That's what most people do in today's world. My feelings are God. 
I don't feel like I'm a child of God. I don't feel like once I, I'm, I don't feel dead to my sin. I feel so alive to it. It's more real than you are, God. And my feelings were heard in the church and my feelings, oh God, feelings, you're so powerful. Millions of people living like that. What a miserable God to have is our feelings. But God is God. And God wrote a book. He used human people, in this instance, the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, God says through him, you are raised up from the dead, spiritually speaking. You are alive in Christ. You're seated in the heavenlies. And somehow God uses you and I to show off his grace. Look with me at verse 7. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God shows us off somehow. Look, look, those Christians, look what I did for them. Look how I changed their life. They didn't always see it or even realize it. But I completely changed their identity. They used to be dead, and now they're alive. God shows you and I off. We look around and we're like, man, what a bunch of wackos and weirdos in the church, and is it even worth it? Right? We look at our sin instead of the Savior. We look at other people's sin, which is even easier. Especially for me, I'm an expert at judging someone else's sin. I think that's my spiritual gift. I'm joking. Unfortunately, that seems to be a lot of people's perspective. But friends, who are you? Who's defining you? Who's the authority in your life? Like right now, who's your authority? The word of God? Or what society has told you you are? Oh, you're this size of body, so you're worthless. Society and Satan say, oh, you, you have only this much material possessions? You're less than. Oh, you've done pretty well financially? Oh, you're more than. Go ahead and live pridefully. No. Authentic Christianity for, through the free gift of salvation by grace means that you and I can look to see God differently and see ourselves differently. I've preached in portions of the world where that would have made me jump up behind those tires. <laughs> but I'm thinking it was a Halloween balloon. For those of you watching online, there was just a, a loud noise. Now I have no clue what verse I was at. <laughs> verse 8. God, oh. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, two of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. God saved you by his grace when you believed. There's that word, believe. God saved you by his grace. My dad was just telling me, my dad is an old man, and he's preached for many years, and he, had a, he was gloriously saved. He was a gang member in the inner city of Detroit. He still has scars from gang initiation rites of of burns and chains and stuff, and, and <clears throat> he got gloriously saved, and, 
and he was working for this, working um, with some farmers, and they always went to the same liberal church that didn't preach the gospel. And my dad and mom got saved, and they went to a <coughs> church that preached Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, not of your works, lest any person should boast. And, and they didn't show up to the liberal church, and the people he worked with, the woman, came over. After they were eating lunch, and my dad, my dad had never even had a Bible, but he found a, a, a Bible, and he was walking around the kitchen while my mom was cooking and, and reading Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 over and over again. And in walks this lady who didn't know Christ, who was religious as all get out, but she had never understood that salvation was free. And my dad said, listen to this verse. It's by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. And she looked at him and she started crying and said, well, I haven't murdered anyone, and turned around and left. Why? What was her response? All her life she had been taught, if you're just a good person, you're okay. But the word of God in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 penetrated her heart and exposed that she couldn't work her way to salvation. It exposed that she was trying to prove herself to God and if she was good enough, God was going to say, all great and a curve with you, you're okay. But God cannot do that. Powerful. God saved you by his grace when you believed. If, if, if I asked you after this service and you had to tell me the truth, like if I had truth serum in a syringe, you know, even you non-vaccinated people, I would give you a shot where you had to tell me the truth. Okay? Probably might get some emails over that one. I'm just joking, okay? But if I gave you a shot of true serum and so you had to tell me the truth and I said, what right do you have to go to heaven? What would you tell me if you were perfectly honest? Would you begin to give me a list? Well, 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 well preacher man, I go to this church every week. Well, 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 preacher man, I think my good outweighs my bad. Well, preacher man, I, I, I did the religious ritual well, preacher, man, I had one guy when I started sharing the gospel with him in a rope once, and he's like, but I know you, Pastor Scott. I said, buddy, if you're trusting to help me to help get you to, to heaven, you are out of luck. I preach about the Savior, but I'm not him. No clergy person can help you get to heaven. It's your faith in Christ alone to save you. It is by grace, and if we begin to boast about it and we begin to give a list, we lack an understanding of salvation, and that lack of understanding of salvation through belief in Christ alone messes our life up big time. It messes our marriages up. It makes us addicts. It makes us bitter. It makes us going around always offended because feelings and, 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 and all these other things are God to us and not the Lord Jesus Christ. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Since 1959, in various ways, this church has stood strong in that salvation is free for, in Christ alone. And faith alone in Christ alone since 19, since Harry Wilson and Virginia started this church in their house here in Mitchell. 
And yes, it's had seasons of, of struggle and tough times, but it always, this church has always come back to having a passion to reach lost people with the free grace gift of God found in Jesus Christ. And may it ever continue here at Mitchell Berean. Verse 9, salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. And then verse 10, don't... I'm sure you're tired. I'm tired. Don't, don't wig out on me or check out on this verse. Listen to this verse. For we are God's masterpiece. The miracle of grace in your life and mine means as people created in the image of God are a masterpiece. Every one of you. No matter your body type. No matter what an ex-spouse has said, no matter your gift mix, no matter what your bank account says, you are a masterpiece. A poem where God is literally writing his story through your story. Some of you don't believe that. Some of you don't believe that you're a masterpiece of God. It just seems too selfish to almost accept it, doesn't it? Again, who's our authority? Our feelings or God? God calls me a masterpiece. You're a masterpiece. No one you look around and see today is not someone whom God loves, is willing to pour his mercy out upon and save, or if they are saved, they are this amazing, unique masterpiece. And what's the response to that? Stay with me in verse 10. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so... We can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Every one of you as masterpiece was created on purpose for a purpose. Every one of you can have an encounter with God where he defines your very core identity and you define yourself not by what you do, but by who you are in Jesus Christ. And there is a holy confidence in grace. There is a holy ability to be the person God created us to be in grace. Because of grace, you and I have, the, have the, the oil of the Spirit that allows you and I to understand that grace isn't a freedom to sin. Grace allows you and I to grow up in Christ and understand who we are in Christ to become the people God created us to be. It is unbelievable to be a Christian. Think what, ha- what would happen to the North Platte Valley If you and I, in our encounter with God today, decided to let him define who we are and not let Satan and society and our own sinful nature define who we are, it would turn this valley on its ear. And you would see more and more people who don't know Christ come and be born again and become the masterpiece God created them to be. I'm really grateful that God in his sovereignty saw fit to, as every conception is, do a miracle of grace and create a girl back in the late 1890s. Her parents named her Myra. From an early age, Myra just had a a sense of who God was and of Christ. From an early age, she not only knew uh, Christ, from an early age, she had an ability with the English language. Myra had a gift from God. 
that she could write poems and songs for God in unique and amazing ways. And God used her gift. Thousands of Christians across the United States sang her songs about God. Myra was amazing. Myra got married. Myra had some kids. Myra began to notice a lot of pain in her body. Myra began to drop dishes that would have never dropped before. Myra began to scrawl instead of write cleanly when she tried to use a writing instrument. Myra had what we now know, more than likely, as rheumatoid arthritis. Her joints were eating themselves up. Her body had turned against itself. And slowly but surely, her body crimped and creaked. And she lost her ability, from her perspective at that time period, to write. Oh, she was devastated. Obviously went into a depression. But as so often happens, the Holy Spirit, when, when, when God's believers are in tough circumstances, gives a creativity to that person. And Myra th- thought long and hard because she still wanted to write songs for God. And so she figured out that she could take two pencils and invert them. So the, 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 the eraser end was down, and she could jam them into her gnarled fingers. And she could peck out songs and poems for God on a typewriter using the inverted pencils. Laboriously writing out. She said, oh, the pain, so much pain, but the joy of writing outweighed the pain of my effort. And Myra Welsh wrote one of the most famous poems in Christendom's history. Millions of people all over the world have been blessed by her account of evidently going to an estate sale one time and seeing an old violin get sold. And she wrote a poem called The Old Violin or subtitled The Touch of the Master's Hand. Listen. "'Twas battered and scarred and the auctioneer thought it hardly worth his while to waste his time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile." What am I bid, good people? He cried. Who starts the bidding for me? One dollar, one dollar. Do I hear two, two dollars? Who makes it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice. Going for three, but no. From the room far back came a gray bearded man. He came forward and picked up the bow. Then, wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the strings, he played a melody pure and sweet. As sweet as the angel sings, the music ceased in the auctioneer with a voice that was quiet and low, said, now what am I bid for the old violin as he held it aloft with its bow? One thousand? Oh, one thousand do I hear two, two thousand, who makes it three, three thousand once, three thousand twice, going and gone, said he. The audience cheered, but some of them said, we just don't understand What changed its worth? And swift came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune, all battered and bruised with sin, is auctioned cheap to a thoughtless crowd, much like that old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He's going once, he's going twice, he's going and almost gone 
but the master comes. And the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. I have been on my knees this week praying that every one of you in every service here at Mitchell this week, gathered or gathered online, would have an encounter with the master who can take and pick you up and dust you off and tune you up and play beautiful, beautiful music through your life as a masterpiece of God. I've prayed for that. My passion, my prayer can't make you accept that. You, in your personal encounter with the living God, who's powerful enough to be personal to every one of you today, wants you to surrender to him, wants you to let him define you and who you are in Christ rather than you or someone else define you or Satan define you. How are you going to respond today to this passage of Scripture? What are you going to do with this? Stiff-arm God yet again? Persist in continuing your own way and your own thing? Belligerently doing life on your own terms? How's that working out for you? Late at night in the loneliness when you can almost cut the loneliness with a knife. How's that working out for you when you keep returning to a bottle or shooting up or, or, or eating the whole pan of brownies? How's that working out for you to live in bitterness and anger? Condemning other people's sins because they're worse than you. How's that working out to you? How does, how is, how is that life giving to you? Or you could, by the grace of God, surrender to the authority of Him today and say, God, I'm tired of fighting you, of resisting your overtures of compassion and grace, and I surrender today. I give up. Surrender. Uh, Victory in the Christian life is so often won through surrender, not striving. God, you've planned good things for me to do. God's plan for this time period in history is for Christ ones to be involved in part of a local church and serving him, doing the good things he planned for us to do long ago as his masterpieces through the context of a local church. How are you going to respond today? I would encourage you to say, Jesus, I don't even fully get all this, but I give up. I surrender. You have to do the miracle of grace in and through me. I surrender. I would encourage you to do that. Father, thank you for your work of grace in this room and online today, meeting people where they're at, but challenging them to go and not stay the way they are. To go on with you means to change. To go on with you means to accept, to have a a repentance of mind that says, I'm willing to change my mind about you, God, and who you say I am. God, continue your work as we continue this corporate worship gathering. Thank you, Jesus. In your name, I pray. Amen and amen.